The Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors. Second Mission provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, community involvement, and of course, writing books like The Hill, a memoir of war in Helmand Province by Aaron Kirk. The Hill is an account of the tragedy of war, the deeply personal experience of combat, and the raw, unfiltered brutality of lower enlisted Marine Corps life. The Hill follows Aaron Kirk's odyssey from civilian to Marine and back again, focusing on his time as an infantry squad leader in Garmzir Helmand Province during the height of the Afghanistan troop surge. To find out more about The Hill and all the lines of effort the Second Mission Foundation has going on, go visit them at secondmissionfoundation.org. That's secondmissionfoundation, all one word, dot org. Secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current events and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, informative content. So surf the pages of Havoc Journal and read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. So if you haven't been on Havoc Journal in a while, go check out what's going on there now. HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K. Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. Guys, welcome back to the show. Um, I owe you all a bit of an apology. As you probably know, um, we've been off for a couple months, which I really hate doing. Um, It's one of my pet peeves with podcasts is when they suddenly fall off the face of the earth for a little bit. And I really apologize to you guys. It would... blame Savage Wonder Festival, which has taken up a lot of bandwidth and um, really took me a minute to get back to this. We were, you know, incredibly uh, undermanned and, uh, you know, we've had a lot of good problems to have, a lot of good creative uh, problems and, and, um, you know, new lines of effort coming out in the wake of the festival. But it has taken me away from Profiles and Havoc for longer than I intended. And I apologize to you guys for that. It will not happen again. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll put a lot of contingency plans in place. Um, and we have to ensure that won't happen again. That said, there is a silver lining in all this, which is uh, our last episode that we recorded before hiatus was with Paul Harrington, who had a long career in state New York state law enforcement as a corrections officer. And now, uh, you know, had written a book called justice or not about his time, uh, as a CEO. And, um, the silver lining is that, uh, at the end of the first time he and I had talked, I really felt there was still a lot of meat on the bone. Like there was still a lot of stuff we had left to cover. And, um, and that I, to be perfectly frank, didn't feel like I'd done a great job at 
getting him to open up and talk about and um, and really understand the fire behind the smoke, if that metaphor makes sense. So I was looking forward to talking again uh, today, and as uh, as luck would have it, or as the hiatus would have it, uh, Paul was, Paul's return visit is our first episode back. So essentially, you guys are getting two back-to-back Paul Harrington episodes. Um, so that works out well. So the question then is, uh, did we get all the meat off the bone here in the second episode? I don't think we did, if I'm being completely honest. Um, I think um, I think Paul's got an awful lot of stuff to say. <laughs> and hearing about the work he's doing, uh, both legally, therapeutically, to process um, and deal with the second and third order effects of all the different legal and emotional and physical um, challenges he's gone through since getting out of, uh, since he's no longer a correction officer. Um, I think he's, uh, he's wrapped around the axle with a lot of details and with a lot of very, very, very um, specific complaints. And I say that because it's kind of funny. Paul has very, very specific complaints and then he has 30,000 foot view complaints. Uh, it was hard to kind of get something in between. And um, I think, you know, when we talk, you'll, um, I, I look forward to him being able to find uh, the maybe 10,000 foot view look at some of the issues, especially policy prescriptions. Um, you know, what are the things that, you know, what's worth lobbying for? How do changes get made? Um, because I think a lot of the uh, tension of what I think you'll hear Paul talk about is one of problematic personalities. And as I tell him on the episode, I, I don't think there's a fix for that. I think you're going to find assholes in any line of work. And um, that's a tough thing to root out. You can always say, well, interview better, vet better. Sure. Um, but I, I, I think that's not a prescriptive way of, of addressing that issue. So when there's personality-based problems, that's one thing. When there's institutional problems, systemic problems that can be fixed through whatever, whether it's legislation, whether it's policies, whether it's directives, whatever, um, that could be something else. But what Paul points out is that a lot of the problems are not policy-based. It's about the implementation of the policy or lack thereof, lack of implementation of a policy. And again, that makes it more of a personality-based issue. So it's kind of a bit of a moving target. I think a lot of the things that Paul brings up seem to be moving targets. It's something you can't easily pinpoint. There's not an easy remedy for a lot of these. And um, you'll hear in the episode my hypothesis that I'll, it's a working hypothesis that I'm kind of stumbled on talking with Paul in large part, but I, I really think, um, I think there has to be a deep appreciation for just how toxic prison envir- the prison environment is. And that I just don't think it's that healthy an environment for somebody to work in for uh, 20 years. I just don't. I uh, personally, I I don't know um, anybody that did a full career there that came out and is um, completely <laughs> at peace with the world and well balanced. I think it's a it's a it's a sick environment. You're you're dealing with a lot of very disturbed people, obviously on a daily basis. And that takes a toll to find your equilibrium. And I think the equilibrium you have to find to even just survive in that place, much less thrive in it as a work environment 
is something that does put you off kilter for the rest of society um, when you get out or dealing with people not in that world. And I think that what Paul gets at, talking about officers turning on each other, um, the toxicity of, of the working relationship, lack of camaraderie that he started to discover, I think it's hard. And you'll hear Paul, I think, um, I think uh, still trying to wrap his head around why that is. Um, so it's, it's a... I, I, I'm glad we could talk about it. It's one of those things that doesn't leave me satisfied. It doesn't leave me fulfilled. Um, but it, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, we're all blind men trying to describe an elephant here. And it's hard to sum up and wrap your head around um, what does right look like when you're talking about surviving and making a, uh, <laughs> a normal, functional, uh, positive work experience in a prison. You know, that's just, that's a tough thing to square. And I'm not sure that 100% that there's a, uh, a solution for that that would satisfy everybody. Anyway, um, let's leave it there for right now because, uh, hey, we got a whole conversation coming up about it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Paul Harrington's second Profile in Havoc. Welcome back to the show, Paul. Thank you for having me again, Chris. Dude, it's a pleasure. Uh, As I told you before, like we have so much more ground to cover um, with your story. And to be honest, I don't know when the next time is we're going to have a corrections officer, former corrections officer on the show. So I want to make sure we make the most of the opportunity and um, and catch up with you. How's the book going? So now that we talked before the book came out, now the book's out. How's that all going? So uh, I received uh, 60 copies of my book to uh, hand out uh, to friends and family and colleagues to try to get their feel of, uh, you know, the the book itself. And everybody's Mm -hmm. been telling me that it's been uh, hard to put down. It's a page turner. They want to see what happens next. Uh, There is some suspense to some of the chapters. Uh, Overall, I've been getting great reviews on it. Outstanding. Have you gotten a pushback? Have there been people that have come out of the woodwork from your past or people that you, you know, didn't realize would read it or anything like that? Was there any negativity? Well, there was uh, some negativity online. Once the book was released and word Mm -hmm. got out, uh, a recent news interview that I did, uh, their narrative uh, basically led me into where I was speaking about the book, but nothing in that interview uh, came out about the book itself as far as what the content of it was, mm-hmm. but it was more or less about, well, what have you seen happen inside the prison? Sure. Was there violence against the inmates um, and abuse by officers? And I said, I have never witnessed that in my 23-year career. I've never even heard of it. Um, and for some reason, because my book is about corruption and cover-ups, sure. Sure. They they made it seem like the news media made it seem like this was what the book was about. So the union, they responded back saying that, you know, Harrington could be acting complicit if he's waited 20 years plus to just come out and talk about that now. And that it's a possibility that I may have been or currently am causing um, a dangerous environment for officers working inside the prisons now. So 
on some of the social media pages on the private groups for correction officers, there was some naysayers. There were some people that came out and said, oh, this is just a money grab. He just wants to do this. Right. Um, you, know, you know, but that that's typical yeah. of some officers that I used to work with. They, they just, they, they ride on your coattails about things that you're doing that are better. Um, but for the most part, uh, that's pretty much where it was, but that seemed to have died down already. Uh, from what I'm being told by other officers, uh, there are a number of officers that I work with that have read the book or are currently reading the book and they love it. And I should also throw in that one of my former deputy superintendents at Fishkill, he's retired now down in Florida. He read the book in its entirety within one week. And he said he couldn't agree 100% more with mm. what's contained in that book. And now that's saying something coming from a superintendent. So what do you think it is? Do you think it's the, um, I think there's two aspects to what you're writing about. There's the anecdotal stuff, the storytelling, right? Yeah. Then there's the policy prescriptions that you might, that a reader might be led to think, hey, maybe we should do X, Y, and Z to fix some of these problems, right? Is that fair? Right. Is that a fair assessment of like kind of a two, the two track messaging of the book has both those components in it? Um. I mean, would you agree with that or, or am I off base to begin with? No, no, you're right. Uh, absolutely. You know, the whole purpose for me writing this book was to prevent this kind of situation that I experienced from happening to the next officer. I have seen it in the past. And when I was working, um, you know, on the job, we are limited. We, we can't come out yeah. or speak out about this stuff, especially in a public forum or to the media. So, for me, it's not about the money. It is about proposing and pushing for change uh, to improve conditions in there for officers that are currently walking off the job on a daily basis there because it is just horrible, horrible. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny. I just got a, a, a flyer that I've seen around town and one was just slid under our door saying, hey, there's a correction officer exam. Uh, please advertise this. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's good timing. Uh, no one else could talk to you. So let's start with this, Paul. Number one, if you're if you're president tomorrow, I mean, obviously president is the right role for this, but hypothetically speaking, if you had the power to make changes, what's the number one change you make in the prisons as far as what you know? More accountability. And it's not about from the top to the bottom, because in any other given situation, when something happens, it's always the senior officer or the supervisor or even the administration that should be taking the heat. But it's all too often that when something does happen at the lower level, the top points down instead of taking blame up there for their own ridiculous policies. So, you know, that's never going to change, right? Because that's human nature. That's everything. That's in the military. Like, you know, that's certainly in politics. That's everywhere. People are always going to look for the scapegoat at the lowest rung of the ladder that they can feasibly get away with. But what is, is there something that the public should know to help them identify and whistle blow from outside the organization or point fingers from outside the organization? Or is there something internally that needs to change in order to hold people accountable? Is there something that would actually fix that? More or less, just jumping back a little bit. When, when let's say there's two officers on a given post 
and something happens, um, they always hold the senior officer responsible, not the mm-hmm. lower, sure. younger guy, the one who's not seasoned yet or whatever. When in sense that stuff does roll downhill, mm-hmm. it, it stops at a certain point. It doesn't make it all the way to the bottom. Sure. But as far as like enacting, you know, change with that and the whistleblower uh, situation, again, it's um, it's really about making that change because too many people at the bottom are being injured on a job unnecessarily by the violence in there. Um and that's where it boils down to is the people that are getting hurt, these officers. And I'm talking about not just a, a sprained elbow. We're no, talking sure. about people yeah. that are missing teeth, that broken yeah. noses, uh, have broken bones and all kinds of major injuries. And all this be- because of the upstairs second floor policies. And like what? The, what what policies are we talking about? What policies put officers in danger? Well, there's there's a, a variety of them. Uh, Right now, it's more statewide than anything. Obviously, uh, when I got out in 2017 and retired in 2018, we didn't have the HALT Act. But between that, uh, where they limit the time that an inmate can do in solitary confinement, uh, anytime you catch an inmate with drugs now, alcohol or something like that, and you have to, uh, you know, issue a a ticket, uh, these guys, these inmates know there's no repercussions that mm-hmm. I used to work in a drug lab, as I told you, mm-hmm. uh, as a certified Nick and narc tester at the prison. And when we had uh, situations where we had contraband like that, and we had to write it up, you're talking about hours of paperwork until this day, they're still doing that. And now all that paperwork's getting tossed out. So the officers are hands are tied behind their back now because they're not all, they're not allowed to do their job. They're they're damned if they do it and they're damned if they don't do it. So they're stuck in that middle spot and that's creating a lot of stress. Sure. So a lot, a lot of anguish. Uh, The inmates know they can assault officers now and not have any repercussions. The most they can get is what? 15 days in solitary confinement. If they even do that, because then they claim all mental health and next to, you know, office of mental health, uh, psychs are releasing them back into population because they find that it's probably not, you know, um, a violation of, of human rights and everything else these sure. guys claim to have in there. So it is really about uh, a multitude of policies, not just one particular one. So let me ask about um, the inmate experience um, in prison. I think you and I both know that a lot of claims that those policies that you're talking about can lead to, they're, they're broad enough that anybody can claim, you know, mental health issues. And yes, with the HALT Act and now 15 day limit on solitary confinement, there's, there's no more stick. There's a lot of carrots, but there's not a lot of sticks to get the inmates to behave. That said, do the inmates have a cause is, are there, human rights violations, not necessarily even perpetrated by individual officers, but is the experience in in prison, is there something that a policy could fix, not a personality-based thing, like firing a bad officer or something like that, but but is there a a policy-based solution that would solve the um, any undue burden on an inmate? 
I would need to look into that further in my research. Okay. Um, certainly, I have a lot on my plate right now, but that's something that, you know, I'm advocating for many other officers who are in similar situations. And I'm not just talking about corrections. I'm talking about all law enforcement, sure. police, sheriff's office sure. included. So um, people have seen what I've been through, know what I've been through and where my success came from it and they, my perseverance and whatnot. So they've called upon me to give them some sort of guidance to their own unique situations. But um, as far as a particular policy goes, um, you know, like workplace violence directives in the department, they are there, they are in black and white, but you know, they say there's always gray areas. And these, these directives that sit in place, AKA policies, uh, they're not always enforced. Like they, they might sure. be there, sure. but any given situation and politically depends. Okay. Well, who's involved? Do we enforce this on that yeah. person? Yeah. Like we did the other one or not. Yeah. It's not an equal playing. It's not, it, it, it's very divided. Uh, yeah. It's funny. You know, when you're saying that I was thinking of, uh, <laughs> this is, this to me was, it was such a, uh, this encapsulates, I think some of the things you're talking about. And I think anybody that has been in, well, probably a life or death job, but certainly a government job that requires you to make um, life or death decisions and have real world uh, repercussions could appreciate this. So I remember at, um, I was on a, uh, this, you probably have seen this in your life as well. Like on many military bases, there would be signs that would say, if you go through this door, you are violating the uniform code of military justice. And it'd be like a door to a, a barracks. It'd be like a door that everybody goes through, but it's a fire door and you're not supposed to go through it, but the sign is there. And I was at barracks where those doors would actually be propped all the way open and everybody's going in and out of them all day long. They're literally propped open for everybody. But if anybody ever wanted to hem you up on it, they could, because they could just, if they decided that that was a tool they wanted to use to weaponize against somebody, theoretically, they could go, Hey, that sign says you're violating the uniform code of military justice. You're getting an article 15 and blah, blah, blah. Cause you're violating something that's written very plainly right there. Even though nobody follows that the door is wide open and all that. Are there things like that, that you saw where it's just like, look, there, there are a lot of things written down, but they're very rarely enforced until they need, until the powers that be need to weaponize them against somebody they don't like to get rid of them. Cause that's something I could see. And I have seen in the military a lot. Um, I, I, I really can't think back to one particular scenario on that, okay. All right. uh, but, but yes, um, more or less, uh, I, I, I'm not going to make this a race thing, but it is, uh, it is factual. Uh, there are officers, female, male, Hispanic, African-American, Caucasian, uh, you know, Muslim, there's all kinds of different, uh, you know, it's like a, a big basket of, of just mixed uh, population there, if you will. Sure. Um, so the, the not just like the department itself, but things that happen at the facility level. Um, and that's not, I'm not supposed to say it's just that fish kill. This could be at most facilities where I'm hearing from colleagues that I used to work with who transferred away to other facilities that if something happens with a white male, let's say, then that same incident 
can happen to like a African-American female um, or whatever. The enforcement comes to the point where if, if the white male makes a complaint about something and that same African-American female makes that same complaint about something, they're going to act on it with her first at that facility level more so than him. It's almost like, and, and again, a lot of people will back me up on this. They will say, yeah, that's 100% true. Where there have been officers who kept notes that told me this, guys that I work with on other shifts at Fishkill, mm-hmm. who took notes throughout their career saying, okay, this happened to that officer and this is what happened to them. He got suspended 15 days. This officer, same thing happened. No suspension, no, none of this, none of that. Um, and so that if something was to ever happen to him, he could come back and say, wait a minute, you don't, you're doing this to me, but you didn't do the same thing happened to her or this other guy. You didn't do nothing to them or it's a different type of discipline. So it is treated differently based on race, based on gender, based on uh, politics, period. So that that same rule, just like you said, some people they could hold against it, some people they won't. It sounds like this happens everywhere. But in a prison environment, it's a different world. We are in a dangerous environment. The the employer, the, the New York State Department of Corrections and the facility itself, wherever they might work, the officers, those administrations are responsible for providing and maintaining a safe work environment for everybody that walks through that gate. And they continue to fail at that every day. And the union representing the officers Mm -hmm. has a reactive stance to that. They choose to, okay, we're going to, we're going to go and represent this officer for that, but they pick and choose. Sometimes they say, Oh, well, we're too busy. We can't, we have a perb hearing that day. We can't do this. We can't do that. Um, Again, politics with the union. You might be a full-fledged paying member like the next guy, but then it's all about politics. Who do they like? Who do they want to help the most? Sure. So uh, how did you see that play out for you? Did you feel like the ball was dropped for you? That basically you were hung out to dry. You didn't get the back support. You didn't get the backstopping from the union or from your peers that others did. So there, there was an issue with asbestos removal at the facility, um, and particularly in my area where I worked at my checkpoint. Um, It's also in the book. I'm not going to get into all the details about that, but I'm just going to say, you know, hey, there was a number of officers. I spoke to uh, OGS supervisor, Office of General Services. Uh, The contractors that came in that were doing asbestos removal, I happened to cross paths with them one day at a gate when I was working, uh, and and they were coming in. for work that day. And I said, Hey, what's going on? Why is that pipe above my desk spray painted red? And they're like, well, it's slated for asbestos removal. And I said, well, I'm kind of concerned about that. They said, don't worry if it's not, uh, if if you don't bother it, you don't touch it, it'll be fine. Uh, Don't disturb it. I said, well, it is disturbed on a daily basis. He looks at me with a shrugged shoulders and he goes, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, we have a lot of water hammer. Those are steam pipes. And I'm right below the mess hall down in the basement in a tunnel. I said, there's steam movement and water all the time through there. 
and it shakes and it bangs, the water hammers mm-hmm. bangs the pipe. And on a daily basis, we have to wipe off our desk. For 14 years, I sat at that desk. So yeah, I'm a little bit concerned. So I wrote that up to our union rep on my afternoon shift. I had six or seven officers that signed it with me as a uh, class action uh, grievance. I had never filed a grievance there before. So I really didn't even know like, okay, what steps do I have to take first? You know? So other officers that heard about this write-up were all coming on board with it. So this union rep, um, he's in the book, obviously with this, this part of the story, we talked a lot about what can we do about this? He took over the paperwork I gave him. He, I asked him for a copy. He never gave it to me. That paperwork disappeared. Try to follow up with him about it. He was always too busy to deal with it. Never, never even went forward. And all the people that signed it, I told him what happened, but nobody wanted to push the issue. It was like every time they said, okay, the union doesn't want to deal with it. Okay, that's okay. So there's nothing wrong here. We can just go about our day because the union's right. No, they are not, period. Again, safety in our work environment. So the union, with my situation when I was assaulted by that officer, as I told you, the vice president of the Mid-Hudson region, his brother-in-law was the officer that did that. So obviously there is a huge amount of nepotism at play, but we don't have a directive on nepotism in the Department of Corrections. Funny though, Office of Mental Health, which is a state agency, they have a directive on nepotism and they work within our facility of Fishkill. So you have uh, an interagency working at Fishkill that has different directives than us and it applies to certain people that work there, but not us. So when I approached the union about my situation going forward, you know, with this assault, everything from labor relations, the way it was all investigated by the facility, um, the union, all the connections that they had up in Albany with the right people that had to take, uh, you know, reports on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was squashed. It was, it was swept under the rug and, you know, and, and emails went unanswered, certified letters to the union steward, the union reps, the mid Hudson vice president all went unanswered. Um, you know, sometimes the signature card would come back and it wasn't signed. They were just ignoring it. It was deliberate ignorance, in fact. So the the union does pick and choose who they want to help. And I'm not just the only case. A lot of officers have come forward to me because they know my story and said, hey, I'm having a problem with them right now, too. So it's not just one particular individual that they might be after. Uh, They definitely take care of their own first, and that's their model. So, again, I mean... I guess this comes into, there's two different competing elements that I can see. One is just natural human nature. And then two is the corrective to fix it, or you can't fix human nature, but at least put left and right limits around it, put a buffer around it. So right now what I've heard is, okay, the HALT Act is one thing that puts officers at risk. Having a nepotism policy, the way mental health does, might be another policy fix that could be put out. Knowing that people are going to be assholes, knowing that people are going to favor those that they like over those they don't like, um, 
in whatever formulation that is, whether it's you know family, whether it's a race-based thing, whether it's a gender-based thing, whether it's any kind of favoritism, whether they like the same sports team. Um, what are the other fixes that can be put into place? Because I think a lot of this is, you know, good granular level um, experience, but I know you're writing for a bigger cause and you're writing to actually make changes. So I think it's important that people understand what exactly the changes are that you would like to see. Well, the number one thing about my experience in the prison was the workplace violence. Workplace violence, again, I spoke about that directive, how it's enforced um, on a case-by-case basis. It should be clear-cut across the board, as the directive says. It's supposed to be. But, again, it depends on who the boss is that day and what they want to do with this. They make some calls to people so that they can avoid somebody they might know or are friends with from getting jammed up in a situation. So so I think what might help in this situation, can we get some specifics? Cause I think, I think part of this is uh, part of the issue that I think people will have a hard time understanding is we, you know, we all know assholes. We all know people that don't execute their jobs the way they should. We all know generalized corruption, but I think the specifics are what's going to help people understand what, if you can talk about a specific situation that people can kind of understand what we're talking about and what the stakes were for you. Well, um, more specifically, um, I have so many different things I could talk about. I'm trying to find one on the top of my head. Um, I feel like, uh, the, the incident that I had after the um, code 10 emergency they had uh, in the 21 building back in uh, April of 2015, that became national news, uh, state and federal investigation. Uh, and the code 10, was, was, that, was that a medical call? What was, what's your code 10? Uh, it's a, it was a call for emergency assistance. Officer needs help. Okay. Um, and, you know, without going into specific details of that, there is some details about it in the book. Um, but it was afterwards how I was treated um, versus how other officers were treated. So a number of us were injured and had to go by ambulance um, to a nearby hospital. And uh, when I was there, um, you know, I was informed uh, once we got there, we had to call the watch commander to tell them that we have arrived to the hospital and, uh, you know, um, giving them updates. Uh, it wasn't very long after that. We had made requests to have union reps come out and even a supervisor. And because of that incident going on at the facility, it was all hands on deck back there but nobody came out at all throughout the entire evening um to stay there with us to represent us when we had law enforcement come into the hospital to start interviewing us uh new york state police uh bureau of criminal investigation forensics um you know they they took our myself and another officer uh, who was across the hall from me uh in the emergency room they uh, started to ask us questions. Uh, you know, it started out like, 
you know, just basic, like, who are you, where do you live, where do you work, that kind of thing. Uh, and then it got into the incident. And that's when I was like, well, I really can't talk about this anymore. I said, I haven't done my report yet. So they didn't like that very much, the BCI. So they walked out and came back in and they took our uniforms. Um, they took pictures of us. Uh, I almost felt like I was a criminal. Um, they had us stripped down naked, uh, put everything in brown paper bags. Uh, they were even going to take the keys to my vehicle. And, you know, after some conversation with the forensics tech, um, you know, he was able just to take some pictures of it and then let me keep my keys at least. Um, things that were happening after that, we were basically made to sit there at the hospital while we were being uh, unofficially detained uh, until word got back to BCI at the hospital that everything was uh, taken care of on their end and that we were free to go home. But I wasn't free to go home. Uh, after I had that brief conversation with BCI, uh, who was asking me for, uh, you know, specific information, uh, it was it was at that point where the facility got, you know, the bosses there got uh, all twisted up because they thought I was giving my report to BCI when they didn't know the fact that that report would be like lined up with theirs once they completed it while they're there. So I point the finger back to the facility because I can't tell you how many times, at least four or five times on my own, I requested to have somebody from the facility come out to be with us, whether it was a union rep, uh, EAP, uh, employee assistance program guy, somebody, a, a supervisor, whatever. But nobody ever came. And they left us out there to dry. Why did no? Why do you think nobody came? I still to this day never got an answer about that, other than the fact that things were so busy back at the facility, um, because you know it was involving an inmate death at that point. So uh, nobody came. Now there was an officer that, uh, as per policy, if somebody goes out to the hospital and they're injured they escort that officer out there. So they're kind of like their liaison, um, you know, with their in a hospital bed and can't get out. And so that officer makes calls for them back to the facility or family members or whoever. Um, basically that night, obviously I didn't have a change of clothes. So they gave me a hospital gown to put on with those disposable socks. Again, this is in my book. Um, and I was ordered to return back to the facility by a lieutenant there. Uh, it was close to five in the morning and it was in the forties, mid forties. It's pretty cold and windy that night. So I had to walk into the front administration gate as he spoke about how that gate slams behind you. And it was near shift change and several officers were there in the administration lobby. And I'm walking in with a hospital gown on and disposable socks. Mm -hmm. Not only was I mortified, embarrassed, but it was absolutely ludicrous that I was forced to do that. They wanted me to make an example of me because 
of what they thought had happened with me giving a report, which is just basic pedigree information that I spoke to BCI about before I said, well, wait a minute, I need to talk to my supervisors. I need to do my report. They interviewed the other officer across the hall from me too, but I'm not sure where that went with him. So I can't comment so much on that. But when the depot security at the time came out in the hallway and he saw me there, he was puzzled. He goes, what the hell are you doing? Why are you dressed like that? And one of my sergeants came out too. And they were both pretty upset. They were like, this is why, you know? And so they have emergency clothing there at the facility. So they were able to get me uh, a sweatsuit. And um, I think it was uh, a pair of sandals or flip-flops or something they gave me. And um, I did my report. Then I went home, drove home. I didn't get home till like 6.30 in the morning, 7 o'clock in the morning. It was daylight. Uh, it had been such a long day and, and, and overnight, the whole thing was just such a long process. But again, um, a lot but of this is in the book. So, yeah, I mean, I guess so. Um, I think it's, I think it's important for people to understand kind of why this matters, why your specific experience matters. Um, because I think a lot of people, especially when they don't know the specifics of what you were going through, can listen to this and go, look, this is just one guy that had a bad workplace environment. Got it. We've all been there. It's bad. It sucks. It puts, you know, it's a toxic work environment potentially. Um, but it ends up getting into, um, you know, uh, complaints where it's hard to know, where it's like, well, uh, like, how do we, how do you know what the BCI guys thought? Was anybody else paraded out with that? Were you singled out? Um, what's the proof that you were singled out? Was anybody else singled out? And, and to what end and why? And then what's the fix? And if there's an institutional fix or is it just a personality-based fix? Is it just a matter of getting different people into different positions? Or is it a matter that this infrastructure itself of the organization needs to change in a holistic way? I think those are the questions that people um, are going to pick up on because I think it's hard. Um, I don't think anyone that's worked in a life and death profession doesn't have a bad story of how they were mistreated. Guys that come off of combat patrols and can't get hot chow and can't sleep and are sleeping in puddles. And, you know, like, yeah, it happens and it does happen. And it's a chaotic environment. You were there. You had a code 10. You had chaos and lights and sirens and everything going on in the prison. Yeah, it's going to be a shit show. That's right. So I think the, I, the issue that um, I want to make sure I help you in, uh, illuminate for people is what is the takeaway? Because obviously there's not a lot we can do about, you know, you coming out in a, in a hospital gown right now, but what's the takeaway from this? What's something that people need to understand in order to get behind the changes? Because we talked a lot about potential changes, but what is the change? What is the stuff that needs to happen? What are the what are the actual moves we can make that's going to change the picture for those that are in there right now? So I took the union to uh, court on this. Uh, some people think that there was a lawsuit involved. It wasn't a civil thing. It wasn't a criminal thing. It was administrative. Okay. And the Public Employee Relations Board in New York State, um, we went in. That was uh, involved with uh the new york state industrial board of appeals as well there's two different cases i had 
One was uh, regarding the union and the facility. And then another one was just um, against the facility and the Department of Labor's uh, lack of investigation regarding that complaint, which the Industrial Board of Appeals found in my favor. And they referred the case back to the uh, Attorney General's office to be brought to uh, state Supreme Court. So all that was a process. And I represented myself pro se on a matter because nobody can really tell that story better than the person who mm. was personally affected by it. It wasn't about money. It was about implementing change. And I've been told by colleagues in there, as well as parole officers, because parole has merged with corrections several years ago. Uh, that's why they call it uh, corrections and community supervision now. Um, has said that we already see changes coming down. New memos are coming out, new directives, uh, changing who, who does the investigations. Uh, the labor relations guy uh, up in Albany no longer does uh, investigations for workplace violence. They changed it so that it's the governor's office employee relations or GOER, G-O-E-R, as they, they call it. Um, they now take over those investigations. Um, there is a number of things. Wait, wait, let, that, me, let me stop you right there, Paul. Do you think that's better? Do you think that is an improvement? I think it's just handing it from one state agency to another. And right. obviously, so, when you have something happen with one state agency, yeah. it's quick to cover up by another state agency. It really needs to have a federal watchdog over it. And if you did, that would take away all those hands in the pot of any implied corruption or anything specific that might lead to that, um, take take that ability away. That'll tie their hands behind their backs like it does tying the hands behind the officers' backs. So so let me make sure I'm hearing this right. So you think what the fix or a fix could be to make sure that post any workplace violence complaint in the facility, no matter where it originated from, it should be federally investigated to make sure it's free and clear from any state level corruption. Well, right now it's just set for state governor's office to do it. Um, I'm not saying that they won't ever get to the bottom of, but right. It, it is to me, it, it's, it's a, it, it's a start. It's a start, a foot forward. You know what I mean? So something is happening here. And if it's baby steps, progress, sure. then so be it. Because we all know government does not work like overnight and get things done. So, so l- let me let me push you on on this because I want to make sure this is clear and people, uh, you know, are, are clear as to what the problem is. What's the difference between corruption and between just incompetence or laziness or petty jealousy or, or petty competition or something like that? If BCI didn't handle, because it sounds like the the bulk of your complaint here was about the the union not getting your back, and about you being investigated by BCI and just treated in a less than optimal fashion for how things went, is that corruption or is that just a bunch of fucking assholes doing the job? Like that, wh- that's that's the assholes doing a job, but yeah. you know from the get go, the next morning. After I got home at 6.30 that morning from the hospital overnight and I got changed into sweatpants and stuff, when I got home, you know, I got to the door. My wife's all confused. I mean, I had called her to tell her what was going on, but she saw me in, in sweatpants. and was like, why are you not in uniform? You know, I didn't get into that over the phone with her. 
but it is. It's it's people being assholes, being vindictive. Bosses, I can be like that because maybe you made something a little bit harder in their job to have to do. So they, they kind of look at it. Everything in, in corrections is very retaliatory, period. Sure. There's sure. always that next day to come back and get that person back that maybe stepped on your toes, you know. But, it, you know, with corruption, there, there's corruption that's discussed in there which I don't want to get into too much about right now today, but there's corruption in there that's discussed and it happens at all levels. And I, I can show on documentation I have from my cases of where this stuff occurred. Now it's, it, it's far from being that asshole situation because obviously um, when, when they're being an asshole, a lot of times that stuff's not in writing. They're just giving you yeah. verbal orders to do it. Yeah. They don't want a paper trail coming back to haunt them when you come back and make a complaint. You know, these officers that are in there still need to stand up for what's right. They just took, they take whatever answer is given to them by the supervisor, whether it's wrong or right, and they have to live with it. They have to take that home with them. They have to, they, they deal with it, the mental stress, the fatigue, everything. Yeah, It's very difficult on them. Um, and, and they're, there are officers to this day that are walking off the job. There, there, there's one recently who put out uh, his resignation letter on social media, and now it's being grabbed up by a lot of other news outlets. And uh, he's telling his story too. Uh, you know, sooner or later, people are going to come forward with this stuff once they get out of the department because they had should have not had to deal with what they had to deal with. So here's, this has always been my impression, and I think we talked about this a little bit last time, but uh, I want to reiterate it. I don't think people can work in prison for any length of time without it starting to get into their pores. And it's a toxic environment. You're dealing with, you know, uh, criminals and with people that are plotting and scheming and, and, you know, doing some hideous shit all day long. And to work in that environment, you can be as straight laced as you want, but at a certain point, it doesn't matter because you're, it's a perverse environment. It's an environment that's going to test you because you're living in the gray. As you and I said, like there's rules that are out there. You can't possibly live by all of them. People do have, as they should, some ability, supervisors have some ability to pick and choose what policies and procedures they want to enforce and which ones they don't. But it does put officers in a compromising situation and it becomes a personality-based business. How much of this problem, because I think when I keep coming back to what are the changes and all that, it seems like there's not necessarily a lot of stuff that can be put down in writing to make changes. A lot of this seems to me just the inherent toxicity of people working in prison. You're just going to become a toxic person the longer you work there because it's going to skew how you see things. You're going to have to cover yourself. You're gonna. There's going to be errors in judgment. But yet you need the latitude to make those judgment calls. You can't script everything out because there are so many unknowns. What do you think about that? I mean, am I on to something with that? Or is there something where you're like, nope, there's absolutely a way that you can dress right, dress this, fix this, and make this an infinitely better workplace solution by doing X, Y, and Z? Well, when I first came on the job, um, there was a lot of morale and unity. Really? Uh, and yeah. oh yeah, and we had we had some some good days, camaraderie. You know, we cooked out at work. There was you did your job. You had a little bit of downtime where you were yeah. able to eat, get together, or whatever. Uh, but 
as I, my career went along and different administrations came in, different commissioners in Albany, and even that deputy superintendent from Fishkill who retired read that book said he worked in Albany up in Building 9 with all the commissioners up there for four years. And he said that there was absolutely a fact, and we knew this down below at the, at the prisons, that there are people up there, commissioners, assistant commissioners, if you will, that are sitting at desks, making decisions, writing policies that have never worked in a prison environment sure. and do not know how that's going to affect them. Do they ask? Do they, they ask down below, hey, uh, this group of officers or ask right. the unit, what is, what, what, what do you think? How is this well, going to affect them? Well, Will wait, this work? Okay, got they you. Don't want, they don't ask, yeah. hey, how is it going to work? They say, this is my, it's my way or the highway, period. Right. No. And I think that's true. And just, I've never been in a life or death profession that that hasn't been the case at, but I think that gets back to the original question. Then what are the changes? What changed? Why did you have a sense of camaraderie early on and not later? Because the commissioner signed a piece of paper because there was a policy put in place. What changed all that? Um, administrations, uh, policies, things like that. There were different things in there, different rules that came down. Um, I think as, as we went along in our career and a lot of the old timers retired, you started getting a whole different di core of officers coming in and, and it was just, it was a push shove thing. I mean, the prison environment is already dangerous enough to work in, but it's pretty sad that sometimes we have to watch our backs wondering is this officer over here going to have my back in a situation? No, no, no. Or, yeah. hundred percent. You know what yeah, I mean? Of course, so, of course. But, but so, wait, but I want to, I want to back up Paul. Cause, cause you just said it was administrations. It was different administrations coming in and different policies that they were putting in place that you attributed to ripping apart the camaraderie that you had had when you first started. What were those policies? It, it came and it came about with, you know, the start, how morale started to crash. They stopped doing a lot of community-based things with us um, where we would go out and help the community on a day that we we're supposed to work doing different projects, whatever. They stopped doing that. They stopped doing a lot of different things that, um, you know, we would do together as a group, um, have people sign up. Uh, the, um, the Department of Corrections had an annual Olympics and um, that up until when I got out was still going, but it was not as heavily participated in as prior years. The blood drives, not very good. The CIFA campaign, the State Employee Federated Appeal, where officers donated uh, a biweekly from their paychecks to uh, a charity of their choice. They used to, the thermometer used to break off at the top on the amount of money they raised there, but they stopped doing that because nobody was donating anymore because of what was being done. Specifically, I I, I need to go really dig in and and, and look back. Uh, I can't really give you that you know answer right now, but as a whole, everything that I saw, how morale lowered, people became disgruntled, they were tired of dealing with the this change and that change, um, you know, and now it's at that point where there, there's been so many things given to inmates that were never even thought of before. 
Um, like what? Uh, well, for instance, uh, computer tablets. Okay. Who in the world would ever thought these guys would be able to email and do stuff on a computer tablet? Um, they, they had it set up where there's like this kiosk uh, on a unit. Now, I'm not sure. I haven't seen it. I've just been told about it. Mm. Uh, they, I guess they charge it. Um, and then they hook on and that's where they could order like products from a certain supplier. Like they wanted t-shirts or sweatpants or something like that. Um, they, they could write home to loved ones. There had been ways where uh, inmates were able to circumvent around that and, and illegally uh, gain access to the internet. So they were putting all these tools in inmates hands. And that's just one example. Um, and, and it's really like, you know, what's going on here? Shouldn't they be giving the officers the tools to do their jobs? Like it's an antiquated system. I mean, well, they like can't what? even find well, a wheelchair there that had works, let alone anything else. They're using army okay. cots from the Vietnam War still inside there. Come on, you got to give the officers the tools to do the jobs. I understand they're trying to rehabilitate inmates. I talked about that in the book too. One of the reasons I got into corrections when the psych asked me in my interview, "Why do you want to come in?" I said, "Well, I wanted to be a part of that rehabilitative process." But boy, looking into it years later. Was I ever wrong? Because right. two third two thirds recidivism rate of inmates that return back to the system once they are let out on parole or whether they're just getting out and no parole and then they reviolate uh, something and right. they're back in right. the system again. So 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 let me make sure I'm clear on this. So so the tools that you say the officers are being deprived are the officers are. Who's sleeping on the army cots officers or the inmates? No, no. Um, I don't know if I could, if I called it a cot, what I meant to say was stretcher. So okay. it, there, there's nobody, the inmates have beds right. with a regular frame with the mattress on it. Right. Um, that's made within, uh, by core craft. It's an industry and in, in corrections that builds furniture and different things like that for the system. Um, so what are the officers no, being cots, deprived? I, yeah. What, what I'm saying is update their tools, give them the right stuff to, you know, give them a, a, a radio that works for a whole shift instead of batteries that die completely an hour into your shift. And then you can't get a new battery on it for sometimes it'd be a half hour. Sometimes it could be four hours before you get a battery. Um, I talk about this stuff in the book, uh, things that they, they need to give these tools to the officers. How about updating their workstations? How about officers get a computer to work from where they can type their reports instead of sitting down handwriting them? How about doing a, a, a barcode system on inmates' uh, IDs so when they leave a unit and they go to their school program or they go to the gym, they barcode, they check in. You have on a computer, you know where that person is. They're still using handwritten passes that I used to get to go to the bathroom in third grade in school inmate jones uh from m unit to the gym or something like that sure. give them a pass officers got 50 60 inmates on some units sometimes it's more than that in a medium dorm like fishkill has you'll be sitting there for 20 minutes to half an hour instead of making security rounds and duty and 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 running uh, your unit you have to sit up there and write passes all day long 
And that so, kind of stuff yeah. is, again, how everything is just so yeah. old-fashioned. I mean, even yeah. the desks in there that they use are from the 60s. You got chairs in there that officers sit on that fall out of all the time because they are so old and broken. They're, they're state supply somewhere from offices, uh, other agencies in the state that get rid of furniture and they give it to the prisons. Well, and it's, and it's because, I mean, I'm sure as you know, I mean, it's because you have to triage your expenses and corrections is never going to be getting the lion's share of any budget, right? I mean, it's, it, there's no way, you, like, you're going to have to triage what's the most important thing. The desks are never going to be the most important thing. A lot of those things that you mentioned are never going to be the most important thing when they have to put money towards the prisons. And the prisons are never going to be something that anybody is ever going to front load as a priority, which I'm leading up to a question here, because what I wonder is, I think, and I'm, I'm throwing this out there. I want to get your reaction to it. I feel like working in a prison is just going to be hell. Because it's never going to get the front burner attention of the rest of law enforcement, the rest of law enforcement can get. If you get a high spike in crime, you will start to throw money towards the police department. But corrections, hey, they're behind bars, man. Just make sure they can't freaking get out. And if the job sucks, move on. Nobody's ever going to throw money at it to make CEOs' lives better. And I wonder if the model maybe needs to be something like Orange County, uh, Orange County, uh, California, uh, or LA County sheriffs where you work, um, you know, your first couple of years in corrections and then you go on the street. So that way you're not doing, unless you really want to, you're not doing 20 years inside a facility, you do a couple of years in there, get a little street smart, and then you go out on the street and it's like, cool, I did my time in there. Now I got the hell out. Because the situation's never going to improve. The budget's never going to get that much better. Is there something so, to that? So you mentioned county, county level, even in New York State, that's true. Orange County, Dutchess County, my area, right? You do have the option to move up and out, become a uh, road patrolman. Uh, but that's at a county level. You mm-hmm. don't have that at state level. The prison's a prison. So other than maybe doing a, a different bid, when you get seniority, right. Right. you might be able to get a more cushy job, like a, a wall tower post or an outside patrol, um, well, you know, it, different it, things it, like that. And, and You're right. Let me, let me just be clear. What I meant is if there's a parallel to that, obviously, yes, you're not county law enforcement. So I get there's a different dynamic. But if it's something where, look, you, do a, you give us a couple of years inside a facility and we'll move you out, whether it's into an investigator position, whether it's into something else. But we look, you look for a parallel to stay in state law enforcement, but just not not segmented into state corrections. Because so, you understand so there there's are a officers sunset that do like that. that. They go, mm-hmm. they use it as a stepping stone, as I explained in sure. part one, that they might go off to become uh, DEC or state police or even go back down. Right. There are but, police but it, officers but, but instead, that instead of their options, jobs to become correction right. officers. How crazy right. is that? Well, what I'm saying is, as opposed to be, being an option or being something for motivated officers to do, you just do it. You just say, hey, look, this is how it's going to be. Because, And this is, I, this is a, a hypothesis I'm starting to form in my own mind. I just wonder if you, it's just not healthy for a human being to work 20 years in a prison. If it's like, look, it needs to be a short, it needs to be a short stint that you do and you push off. And maybe that's a yeah. fix is that, is that state corrections. It's like, Hey, you do it's state law enforcement. 
you do a couple of years in corrections and you move on into the greater state law enforcement picture. That could be definitely a thing. I've always said that. Uh, well, first, let me say real quick. Um, officers that come in to, to work in, inside there, some of them might be on galleries or units. They might be working a super max. They might be working a max. Yeah. And then there are officers that might be working like a medium security, minimum security. Sure. They got a cushy job. They might be working in the arsenal or a quiet post in a school building where they don't have inmate contact all the time. Everybody's getting paid the same based yeah. on your salary grade. Sure. So sure. these guys might be doing a lot more work and get a lot more stress than somebody over here. And I know people have come up to me already and said, Hey, I retired and I didn't have any injuries. I never got assaulted once. Yeah. Yeah. It, were, were they on these front lines? Uh, most of the time, no, because they had certain areas of that job that they could yeah. be in. Yeah. But, but getting back to, you know, stepping out to other agencies. So if you got an officer and some of them stay, by the way, it's not 20 years of corrections, 25 in New York state to retire. Wow. wow. So, and, and the new tier sixes, I, I'm told, uh, you know, they have less benefits now. So it's that much harder mm. for them to work toward their retirement. But being said, working in a prison, you got, when I was there, there were some people that had 35 years on a job. And I've always said they could have walked out 10 years ago, but now tomorrow when they walk into the jail, anything could happen. They had the opportunity to leave, but they're still there. I I get everybody has different reasons. Maybe it's because of kids in college or Mm -hmm. I I don't know, you know, or, you know, alimony, who knows, whatever. So to have them, the, the state's paying them. Top rate, let's say they're making with overtime $150,000 a year. You get a new guy out of the academy. He's starting at like 43000 They put him in that job and they trained him when that officer worked. They're saving $100,000 right there. Yeah, sure. So if you sure. cut it back to 20 years, like state police and other state agencies and local police, they have a 20-year retirement. You yeah. get out after 20 years yeah. and then you move on. You can go get another job. Uh, in law enforcement, work part-time for another police agency or whoever, you could do that. But in corrections, it's like once they slam that gate behind you, even though you're going and coming home and coming back to work, it's like you're there. And and it, for those guys that use that stepping stone to get out, yeah. kudos to them. Yeah, kudos yeah, to them. yeah. They got themselves out of that environment. So have you looked back at when you started your career and do you see a lot of differences? I mean, obviously, everybody's different than they were at the beginning of a career. But what are the differences that you've seen in you since when you started? Um, well, emotionally, um, physically, huge differences. I've had eight surgeries. Orthopedically, I'm a mess. I have a plate in my neck and screws. I have a rod and screws in my low back. I've had both knees operated on. I've had my sh- left shoulder, my left elbow operated on. I have tinnitus. I have TMJ. I have a lot of, you know, medically they said I'm perfect, but orthopedically I'm a train wreck. Mm. So, you know, uh, I wake up in the morning. I see these scars. It constantly reminds me of what I had gone through. So I'm a very different person when it comes to uh, my mind and my body. Um, there are people that can go through a career and, and not have 
any of those issues. But, and I'm not saying like, this is all across the board. I'm painting this with a broad paintbrush um, for all officers. There are a number of officers who got out, got three quarters, and, and they're in agony every day because of the pain. Sure. And sure. don't even get me started about the workers' comp system, how oh, a lot yeah. of a lot of providers, medi- medical institutions are not accepting it no more. Yeah. It, it, and, it, and the state insurance fund is denying everything on authorizations that you need an MRI or you need to get this medication, but it's not in the formulary. So even though the professional doctors and the specialists you go see say that's what this guy needs he's a patient, the state says no. Yeah. So yeah. you're you're left in pain, and and that's the that's the anguish. That's that's what we have to deal with. Yeah. You know, we we can't sue the state. Our spouses can, but we as an officer can't yeah. sue the state because we agreed to a union contract stating that we were going to take workers' comp. But because workers' comp has really fallen through on on the, on this for many of those injured workers, um, there there's no. There's nothing to fall back on to say, hey, no, you're not doing this for me now. So here's what we're going to do because you're breaking your agreement. I, I don't know. So l- l- how much of your bandwidth? I mean, obviously you got your DJ gig, which is, you know, keeping you incredibly busy. I know. But in your spare time, when you come up for air, do you still feel a lot of resentment against the job, against how you were treated? Is it kind of something where you find yourself muttering into the mirror a lot in the mornings, or is it something where you feel like now that the book's out, Hey, I said my piece, I can move on. It's a burden off my shoulders. Pretty much that book was to bring attention to these issues in there that need to be brought to light there back in a day, as you said earlier, uh, put the criminals in prison, throw away the key. It's not like that anymore. They don't forget about it. They want transparency. They want to see what's going on in there. They want to listen to what's going on in there. Um, and it's always from an inmate's perspective, never from an officer's, because we are, we on a job, we're, we're not permitted to be able to come forward with that stuff. So once you retire or you resign, get out and go work another job, you are entitled to do that. But not everybody wants to sit down for three years and write a, a very detailed sure. book like I sure. have. Uh, maybe they don't have that aspiration. Maybe they don't have the ability to do that. Um, many people ask me who helped me do this. I didn't have any help except for the fact that I saved every document from the Academy on, um, that I was able to refer back to, which helped me keep my narrative, if you will, factual and in a, in a proper, uh, sequence of timeline. Um, you're every, you know, you're every supervisor's nightmare. No, of course nobody liked you. You're keeping every document you had back to the academy. You're that guy that was keeping well, they every told us document. To do that. Did they really? They, the oh, academy really? staff, wow. the academy staff, and bosses told us even in the beginning. Here's your copy. Make a copy. Keep oh, copies wow. of all your yeah, documents. Yeah. Save it. So it wasn't like it was just me. Gotcha. No gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they said it's you're not guaranteed. You make an assumption. Okay, smart. The department yep. has a copy. Department. It's. Human people, humans are running that department too. They make mistakes. People can misplace a report and that's happened. And when I was going through my three quarter disability uh, retirement, they were missing a report from 2007 where I got thrown on 
with what was uh, believed to be urine at the time. And I had to go to the hospital, have blood drawn and everything. My uniform got covered. Um, you know, they said that they didn't have that. The retirement system needed that copy. So I was like, oh, wait a minute. Put in the file cabinet, put it in the scanner, scanned it. Full color copy in five yeah, minutes, emailed yeah, to them, yeah, and they yeah. confirmed it. Yeah, that's you Imagine that's if I didn't saver. have that, trying oh. to get the state to say, hey, where is that? And they say, yeah. oh, we don't know. Now it never happened. Of course. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so the reason I ask, like, how much this still is with you and how much you still find your mental bandwidth sucked up by um, fighting through the grievances, the resentments, all that. Is because it does it seems to fire you up still, and it's like, and justifiably so. But I wonder how therapeutic you found writing the book. If it was, it really- was very therapeutic. It yeah. was, allowed me to get my emotions out on paper, yeah. knowing that there was going to be people reading about this. And you know, when I sent it to the publisher, I only sent it to one publisher, and right away they were all over it. They were like, "This is awesome. We want this. It's captivating. It's a page turner." Um, you know, obviously there's legalities they had to comb through with it, but this is something they wanted and that they're pushing for. As far as mentally what it does for me right now, have I moved on? No, I, I still see counselors about uh, a few different incidents that occurred in there, um, you know, from from my years as being a correction officer. And that's under workers' comp. So I'm constantly reminded on a weekly basis about it yeah, because yeah. just like sitting here talking to you, I'm talking to them yeah. and we just revisit those instances yeah. and I go to yeah. bed at night and I can't tell you how many times I wake up. I have these nightmares of things that are happening inside there where I feel like I'm back inside that environment again. And it, I don't, I'm not able to escape it. Not, not at this point. And, um, Sharing those experiences with others, getting other people to open up and talk. Like when they have groups that get together and people all have the same problem, everybody, it helps everybody to hear everybody else's issues to understand more and to say, Hey, I'm not the only one dealing with this. Yeah. So, so it's, it's great to be able to talk about it where the department does not, does not want you to talk about it. Um, an episode on Law and Order I was watching a couple of days ago. They were saying uh, about uh, Sing Sing Correctional Facility where inmates, you know, from NYP to get arrested, they go up there. They call it up the river. Um, they said something about how the DA's office is saying that prison officials are not going to like us airing their dirty laundry. And then the other assistant DA looked back at him and said, "Well, then they should clean up their act." And I laughed so hard that couldn't have been more hit on the head directly than that. Um, and it really needs to be uh, yeah. until, until people are able to come out and say, here, here's my experiences. We can't let this happen anymore to the next officer. Uh, then, you know, whatever, whatever can be put in force, whether it's, you know, more disciplinary measures or, suspensions or you're going to lose your job you're going to be charged criminally uh with with any particular given situation but a lot of times that's not the case yeah and i could see that being a a double-edged sword i mean the problem i think i think one of the things i'm coming away with this thinking is that i'm not sure 
that there's a ton of policy fixes. I mean, you've thrown out a couple of things, but it seems like a lot of this stuff, it's just, it's personality based. And I think if you give people weapons in, in the form of other policies, it'll just continue to get weaponized. I think you have to change the dynamic of who's able, able, able to get those jobs and understand that there's, I mean, again, I say this is a working hypothesis, but I think there's just a sickness and people just should not be in working in a prison for that long. And it's funny. I'll say one, one thing I, I thought is when you talked about people who have cushy jobs, I'm thinking about when I used to work at Queensboro correctional facility occasionally, and I'd go in there and super laid back, you know, minimum security prison, everybody's done their time. They're about to get out. It's essentially a halfway house for those that don't know. Yeah. And, um, but fucking corruption. Yeah. Head chaplain was fucking the prisoners. Literally. What? Yeah. I mean, yep. I, I'm not and, surprised. And, and, and I mean, I'm not, inmates I'm not fucked because I, I know, but a chaplain. Yeah. And, and I, I'm not casting aspersions. You can Google it. It's right there. It's very, I mean, this is a long time ago, but he got hemmed up for it. But then like, and that's, that's my point about prisons is that even in the laid back environment, that's often where the worst corruption can happen because there is no tension and yet there's availability. There's a perversion of thought in there. You're just dealing with dudes that are wrestling with a lot of fucking demons and okay. It's not a physical thing, but Jesus, it's really, it's some savage stuff, man. And you, and it's just a bad environment. And again, these were people, and this is to my point about working in a prison, whether as a CEO, whether working for a department of correction, in any capacity, you shouldn't be there for that long. If you're there for that long, it I think just I, I just think evil starts to happen. I don't know. As I say, this is a working hypothesis that talking with you is making me think, but I'm kind of just throwing that out there. I want to ask you, have you looked back at you and looked at things you would have done differently? Is there anything you could have done differently? Because I know we cast a lot of, we, I mean, you and I are sitting here, we're, we're casting a lot of aspersions, we're pointing a lot of fingers, and that's all well and good. But what about you? Was there something that you look back and you're like, yeah, I probably could have done that differently or, or not even done, because I, I don't want to be technical about it, but just your mindset. Just like, yeah, you know, I needed to have a different mindset if I was going to go in there. I should have steeled myself up some other way. I, I don't know. Does that make sense? So getting on the last chapter of my book, I think it's close to the last page. I write in there about how maybe I should have just avoided law enforcement altogether. Although mm-hmm. I am a large proponent, large supporter of blue lives, of sure. police, of law enforcement, of the blue line. I, I discussed that with you before. Mm-hmm. You know this going in a, a prison um, was something I didn't plan. I opened up newspaper one yep. day. Yep. I, I saw the civil saying. servants exam. Yep. Right. So I'm like, all right, I'll take the test. Let's check it out. A state job, good benefits. Right. So um, I, as far as me want to do something different, I probably knowing what I know now would not have gone in this job mm-hmm. at all. Um, I know several people that have obviously since I've been in there, but even before I went in, I occasionally I go into, you know, a restaurant or, or like a gas station, let's say, uh, and there'd be a, a, an officer there in uniform paying for his gas, 
you know, and I'd always noticed that. And I was always intrigued by that. I'm like, those guys work in a prison, you know, it, I've been on a prison tour up at Clinton um, years ago uh, with the college up there, Clinton community college. They took us on tour. Um, and it was, it was interesting uh, to say the least, but at the same time, you came out feeling like, man, I'm going to respect that laws, you know, those yeah, laws. Yeah, right. Because, right. Cause uh, it, it gives you, Scared straight. straight. Yeah. 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 It really does. Totally. And and why I decided that I wanted to go in there um, afterward. (laughs) But I I wanted to um, continue my studies with uh, hotel restaurant management and that service industry. Um, You know, I I would have done that definitely. So, but you know what? We can't go back and turn those pages now. No, um, but but I'm actually wondering. I'm actually wondering what the value because I think there's value in you saying that for people listening, especially if anybody is thinking about a career in corrections. Uh, you know, understanding what the helpful mindset is to have, or what the level of expectation should be for the work you're getting into. So I think being able to do some forensics and some analysis on what you might have done differently. I mean, not even about going into the job, but also how to approach the job differently. If there was a different way to be, being that you were there, it was there a different way of thinking about the job that would have made it easier on you once you were in it. There, there's uh, there opportunities that I could have probably taken to work in other areas uh, where I could have avoided situations that had occurred in the areas that I was working in. Mm. I, I could have, I could have, you know what, I'm going to become a correction counselor instead. I could have mm. transferred over to do that. Or I could have been like, let's see, let's go to parole. I did take the court officer exam. As I told you last time, uh, I got an 85 on that. Um, the list never made it below 90 on the, on people getting called up and they gave the test again. Um, you know, they had uh, down the hall in the administration building by the personnel office, there's this large bulletin board and they had um, state job civil service exams and job postings up there. Um, sometimes it was a drop in pay, you know, and one thing uh, I looked at those all the time and I thought to myself, well, that sounds interesting. Maybe I should do that. But then I don't know why. I just never went forward with it. I just, I didn't do it. Um, other than taking that one exam, uh, maybe, you know, I thought things can't be that half bad here. I started yeah. rethinking situations like, sure. is the grass greener over there? Yeah. Am I going to be getting out? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I screwed up and too late. You know what I mean? What do I do now? Um, it, it was, it was that mentality that a lot of CEOs have that, they're afraid to give up that job that had great benefits as a tier three member or tier two, mm. but not so much now as a tier four or six. Any of that, those guys actually there's legislation right now working on changing some of those benefits to restore them for the tier six members. Now you mentioned before that you had a piece of paper under the door about corrections exam. They can't even get enough people to take the test and get them through the Academy because there was about 80 Officers in a class at the academy, over 60 of them quit this past uh, year um, that came out. And all the money they spent, the state yeah, spent, yeah, yeah, on training these guys. Yeah. And they went and quit because of what they're going into, that environment. That's saying something. 
And and then you got season That's an astronomical resignation yeah. letters that are saying, I can't do this no more. My family's too important to me. Even if they got 18, 20 years on a job, they're not sticking with that next seven years to try to make retirement because you go in that door again tomorrow to shit can hit the fan. And it'll be too late for you to be able to walk out of there the same way you came in. So when you say, I mean, th- th- I did not know that that was the percentage. If 60 out of 80 recruits that one are walking. Case, that absolutely, one, yes. Is yeah. it, I, so, okay, if that's, is that an outlier though, or is it trending towards that where you're getting 50% or less of a class finishing? There's, there's major shortages and manpower staffing for officers in New York State prisons right now. Not only are they closing facilities down, but they're also closing portions of facilities down. Mm-hmm. There are officers that are being mandated on a regular basis, too many that I can personally count, um, that are being stuck 16 hours a day, four days straight. And you know they're being called in on their days off. Um, it, it, this leads to low morale. It leads to officers that are becoming sick, physically sick, because they're not getting the sleep they need, the mental stress on their bodies, everything that's going on. It's just a horrible situation, and they can't keep people on that job. They have, have, in addition to those closures, they have um, a number of officers who have said that they plan to walk off but they're waiting for that right moment. Yeah. And right, it's, right. it's it was not like that at all. People stayed and did their time the 25 years when I first came in because it was a different working environment. And so um, so it let's, has wait, gotten worse over the let years. Let me let me pick up on that, Pell, because I just want to make sure that I'm I'm really clear in my mind when you say that. The difference in the working environment, if I have it right, is the level of outside involvement in the prison now, the amount of people that are coming in to lobby on behalf of inmates, look after the inmates, what have you, and are looking over the shoulder and second-guessing COs on a day-in, day-out basis. Is that really what we're talking about? There, There is uh, some truth to that, but that's not 100%. Okay. Um, they, so what is it? There's, What's a, the multi- change, there's a multitude of things uh-huh. going on. Um I can't physically uh, speak, personally speak right now on behalf of officers that are working inside there because I have not been in that environment in the past five years. But I am still in contact with multiple officers that are working there that are telling me this, but it's hearsay, so I won't get into that. Um, honestly, though, uh, the difference between back then and now, um, uh, again, it's it's just a way – uh, the, the prison system has implemented so many changes and has taken away a lot of uh, authority, taken away a lot of uh, your ability to do your job. Um, they're holding people accountable for things right now that they never held them accountable for in the past. Um, you know, again, things, tidbits, information that I'm hearing about. So you mean like uh, qualified immunity or something? Like, what are we talking about when we when, when you say that? You want to elaborate on that qualified well, immunity? Well, are you, are you, do you mean like when you're saying that they're not, they're, they're taking away things that the officers relied on the past that would give them some degree of protection? Are we talking about qualified immunity? I don't know what we're talking no. about. So what we're saying is basically, uh, 
you know, an officer can go up and assault you. Um, back when I was working, we didn't carry pepper spray, but they uh-huh. do now. Officers are carrying pepper spray, batons. Uh, most of them have radio cuffs, keys, um, you know, different things like that. Outside posts, they carry weapons, uh, sidearms, uh, mm. rifles, shotguns, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, getting back to uh, these inmates now that they know that they can get away with so much stuff because of the policy changes, because of the law changes through Albany, um, and officers get assaulted by these inmates, get put in a hospital, come back out six months later, come back to work. The inmate was never arrested because you have a district attorney's office in, in specific counties, not all of them, but more so like across the river, in Dutchess County, where during my time, they would not prosecute inmates for these assaults unless it was deadly, serious. But if it was a, uh, a third degree, second degree assault or something like that on an officer, they weren't doing it because their thing, their philosophy was these prisoners are already locked up doing time. Let the system handle it internally and deal with it. We don't have the staffing, the mm-hmm. budget, or right. the time to go after somebody who's already locked up and safe from the community. You know, so it, it, it right. puts the officer in a bad position because now there's no repercussions for that inmate that did that to the officer. And they're taking away any paperwork. You have to write up somebody on, and they're just throwing it out. So these inmates are being given, like, the law of the land. They're running amok. It is chaos in there, period. And with the short staffing uh, issues going on and officers who aren't as quick to react because they've been doing four 16-hour shifts in a row um, and because the morale is down because nothing's being – there's no accountability held on these guys uh, and, and you're getting injured left and right. This is a this is a boiling pot of water that's about ready to spill over. And I won't be surprised coming up soon if even tomorrow, next week, or even next month, we hear of more officers becoming seriously injured or even possibly killed by these violent inmates and the drugs that are almost like they're being allowed to have them in there because they turn a blind eye to it. Obviously, if you write them up because they're in possession of drugs, they're not getting in trouble for it anymore. Um, they had to change their testing system because of some uh, there was a manufacturer issue or whatever. So they had you know issues that were coming up positive, different contraband. When and in fact, it was a a bad test. So that that's a di- different can of worms. But right, right. In a so, sense, all those tools are being taken away from officers. So, is it so? Basically, what I'm hearing is this: kind of just the corrections aspect of the anti-police, defund the police, BLM kind of rhetoric and propaganda. Is that essentially what we're talking about? It has definitely all those changes, spilled over, it and that's why over to that person. Okay. So we the, were all protested yeah. by BLM after the homicide in 2015 in Poughkeepsie, right. Beacon, and Fishkill, and all over on the internet. Okay. Um, they named some of the officers and had them up on poster boards standing on Market Street in the city of Poughkeepsie blocking the road and just going based on what one sided uh, accusation, if you will, without knowing all the facts. So is that 
has that been a continual campaign of intimidation basically against corrections officers? I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I'm just trying to sort this out. I mean, you tell me you can tell me I'm off base, but it, it, I mean, when you start putting pictures of COs up on flyers in public areas, that seems to me like it's a bit of an intimidation tactic. No, I didn't see any pictures of them, but I did see names first and last okay. names or sometimes just okay. the last name. And it had everybody on edge. You got the sure. daily news, New York post front page news about it. You have the local newspapers up here. They're talking about it on the radio stations. They're talking about it on the TV news local. They have protesters standing out in the street that are saying, you know, what are you exactly protesting for? Other than the fact that you, you heard, you read in the newspaper about this happening. Now you're out there. Right. And when the real questions come back to those protesters, they're, they're, they're running in circles with their answers because they just right. don't know. So they weren't there. They don't know. Right. So, so it seems like this is, but I, I guess what I'm trying to nail down is that that's really what you're attributing a lot of this leak for, um, right? That, that a lot of this, these changes, when we're talking about policy changes, I just want to nail down what it is we're talking about. But really, that's what we're talking about. It's about kind of some of the social justice policies, fueled policies that have come into play lately, right? Is that, well, some is that of those really? Policies, their policies are a policy. It's about the enforcement. They can write anything okay. they want yeah, and put sure. it on file, but it's, is it really being enforced? Is gotcha. it being enforced? on a case-by-case basis when it should be clear across the board, everybody's on the same level, period. You know, even with the administration officials, I don't care. We're all human first. I might be an officer. You might be a deputy superintendent, or this guy might be an assistant commissioner. We all have to come down to a human level and know this is what reality is in a prison. Regardless of what your title is, you hold some responsibility for those people yeah. who you employ, but they're not taking that responsibility. And that becomes an issue. Yeah. Um, but it's, Are, it's all about the enforcement of those policies. And it's it, the lack of enforcement is really the biggest problem. Okay. We'll leave it there for the time being, Paul. Um, I'm glad you come back on, man. Um, and I'm glad we could sort through this. Obviously, um, there's an awful lot of subject matter here. Tell everybody where they can find justice or not and all the links and, and promotion that they should know about it. So on June 30th, uh, my publisher, Austin McCauley Publishers USA, based out of Manhattan, they have offices overseas as well. They've released the book internationally. Um, it's on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, BookDepository.com, eBay walmart um you know multitude other bookstores right now it will be showing up in at least 40 libraries in the hudson valley part of new york state for now um and it'll be on bookstore shelves soon uh right now it's online sales uh and online sales with the pre-orders was through the roof um so i'm, I'm happy about that i'm happy the fact that this book is being sold in uh, the United Arab Emirates, in London, the UK, it's in uh, Germany, Australia, Canada. It's in different language formats. Sure, uh, sure. It, the, the publisher released it internationally. So we are 
it, it's just a matter of time uh, to see where things go with this book. But I'm very, very positive about it. And if anybody goes out and get, get online and, and get a copy of this book, you can get the ebook for a fraction of the price of what the paperback or the, the hardcover is. Um, so definitely need to look into this book. Don't say I didn't tell you so. Honestly, this is my experience. We all have our own experiences, but the perseverance that I had to push forward to make sure this didn't happen to the next officer is something that I put my best foot forward on. And the state was not expecting that from me. Dude, that's great stuff, man. Uh, we'll catch up down the road, but listen, um, I'm glad we come on and close the loop on, uh, on the book and on the experiences. We'll talk down the road, Paul pleasure. Thank you again, Chris. That was Paul Harrington's second profile in havoc. Appreciate Paul being on, um, coming back and taking another bite at the apple. Um, as I said, I'm still dissatisfied with uh, overall how, how it went. There's still so many more things I'd, I'd like to understand and I'd like to be clearer on uh, based on my conversations with Paul. But, um, and I think there's some stuff that, you know, Paul wanted to keep his ammo dry and not give away too many spoilers in the book. Um, but that said, I also think, uh, you know, my biggest takeaway from my conversation with him is just how toxic the uh, working in prisons is, especially for a long period of time. And that uh, I think the trauma of that toxicity, whether it's physical, certainly, but also emotional, spiritual, mental, I think that just takes a while to unpack. And I think to do full forensic accounting on it, get a full analysis of why things happened the way they did, um, the motives that lead to some of the decisions and, and cause some of the fallout that Paul dealt with, yeah, it takes a while to fully uh, wrap your head around. And um, yeah, it's a rough life. So appreciate Paul coming back and taking a second bite at the apple and clearing up some things. Uh, uh, maybe it's not as many as I'd like, but certainly I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I hope those of you that are in law enforcement, specifically corrections, um, or thinking of going into it, I get something out of that and by the book. Cause I know there's a lot of stuff that Paul didn't talk about um, that is in the book uh, that, that does, I know, answer um, questions and, and kind of fill in the context. Uh, and that's important. Uh, it's probably, Paul's probably happy. I didn't get the book in time. Cause I think I probably would have ruined all of the spoilers and been like, oh, wait, 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 tell me about this. <laughs> and why, why did this happen the way it did? But I think, uh, but yeah, buy the book because it's rare. It, the, I mean, the literature uh, coming from actual corrections officers themselves is pretty sparse. And for Paul to have spent four years writing this book, uh, it's foolish not to listen to what he has to say and hear him in his own words. I, I think that's something that uh, not just people interested in the penal system, but, but anyone interested in law enforcement or you know, the anthropology, anthropological aspects of, uh, <laughs> of prison life, I think would be, would be interested in. So, um, I'm definitely looking forward to getting my copy and reading it myself. Okay. We talked at the front of the episode about second mission foundation and havoc journal. 
I would now like to tell you about our other sponsor of this week's episode, Veterans Repertory Theater, which, full disclosure, is my nonprofit. It exists to produce veteran playwrights and celebrate veterans in the arts. It's a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. That includes the Savage Wonder Podcast, the Savage Wonder Festival, the Savage Wonder Literary Blog, our Write Loud events on Instagram Live, live shows at the parlor, a whole bunch of stuff. And it's worth saying that our definition of a veteran at Veterans Repertory Theater includes not just military, but law enforcement, fire, EMS, Department of Defense employees and contractors, intelligence services, even the Foreign Service. So check out everything to do with Veterans Repertory Theater at vetrep.org. That's V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. Check out all the lines of effort going on there. And thank you again to VetRep for helping to sponsor this episode. Okay, that's all I got, guys. If you're listening to us on iTunes, obviously we'd appreciate a five-star review. Say whatever you want about us. But if you could attach it to five stars, we would deeply appreciate it. As always, thanks to our producer, Michael Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Paul Harrington. And we'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc.